재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Time for International News Digest. We're going to get some analysis and some of the major news headlines around the world. Uh, last week, President Islam Islam Karimov, who had been ruling the Central Asian country of Uzbekistan for 25 years, died after reportedly suffering from a brain hemorrhage. Now, the average Uzbek is just 27 years of age, meaning that most people can't remember life without the former Soviet strongman at the helm, leaving the country now in a state of uncertainty and political turmoil. So to help us learn more about the future of Uzbekistan in the post-Karimov era, we're very pleased to have joining us from Birkbeck College at the University of London, law professor Bill Boring. Hello. Hello. Very nice talking to you. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor. If we look back at Karimov's 25-year rule, uh, what do you feel is the legacy left behind? Uh, is he going to be remembered as, I suppose, people from the West and here would think of as a run-of-the-mill despot? Or does he have uh, some other, I suppose, compelling aspects to his legacy? Well, I think, first of all, we have to bear in mind that he was the last Communist Party boss in the Soviet Union. So he's not alone in representing that kind of continuity. Mm. And I suppose one, if one wants to say something in his favor, <clears throat> certainly over the years, Uzbekistan um, is, has become the most uh, powerful country in Central Asia. And of course, the Uzbeks are to be found uh, in every country in Central Asia and in the northern part of Afghanistan. And he has built a... Uh, an extremely tough uh, regime around himself. Right, and it is uh, important to note those, uh, I suppose, uh, unique aspects to this because, it, again, I, I think for our audience and a lot of people who are in Northeast Asia or maybe from the West, uh, you kind of conflate all these Central Asian republics, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and, and it's hard to kind of uh, get through this, but we're appreciating the analysis that you're giving us here. Politically speaking, how is this succession uh, going to work? How is the transition of power going to be? Uh, taking place. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have been remarking on the potential political instability right now in Uzbekistan. Well, I don't know about that because uh, he's established really such a um, strong, indeed ruthless structure around himself that at the moment, uh, though of course nothing can be predicted with certainty, it looks as if uh, there will be a transition within the regime. Um, very briefly, under the Uzbek uh, constitution, it's the head of the upper house of parliament um, who is uh, presently the acting president, Nigmatilla Yuldoshev. Uh, but it was very, uh, it was to him that uh, Mr. Putin sent condolences. Uh, but it's extremely noticeable that he was not one of the people meeting uh, the foreign guests arriving for the funeral. Uh, nor was he given a central role in the funeral. And the people who were uh, really up front in the funeral were the Prime Minister Shavkat Mirziyoyev and his first deputy Rustem Azimov. Uh, Mirziyoyev is 59 years old. And the very strong rumors are uh, that uh, one of them, probably Mr. Mirziyoyev, uh, will succeed Karimov. And it's also noticeable that Mirzizoyev worked very closely with uh, Mr. Putin when Putin was Russia's prime minister.
So you don't foresee necessarily then some kind of battle taking place between the um, I purported successors. You do expect that it will be a relatively smooth transition. I suspect it's very much in their interest that as far as possible things continue as before. And uh, I've been to um, the country several times recently in connection, I mean, for the British Embassy in Tashkent, but in connection with uh, Uzbekistan's engagement with various United Nations bodies. And uh, Uzbekistan is not alone in being a very authoritarian country, which nonetheless has really quite active engagement with international bodies of one kind or another. One very interesting question with the new regime is whether it's going to be closer to Russia. Mm. Um, uh, and many predict that might be the position. It's already pretty close to Russia, of course. Uh, there are so many uh, instances where you have international criticism against uh, leaders who may be deemed totalitarian and may be committing human rights violations. In, in Uzbekistan's case, and you mentioned their sort of... Um, I don't know if we would term it adroit, but uh, their their ability to be able to play uh, Russia against the West, against each other. Do you feel that he was skillful enough that that, that uh, despite the human rights criticisms that uh, the country was able to avoid complete ostracization? Well, I would say uh, that that is most certainly the case. And the recent visits I've made were in connection, surprisingly enough, with uh, Uzbekistan's uh, ratification quite a few years ago of the United Nations Convention Against Torture. Now, Uzbekistan has been condemned on numerous occasions uh, for the use of torture and for very harsh methods in government. Nonetheless, uh, last year they were in Geneva defending Uzbekistan's record in front of the United Nations Committee Against Torture. And in all of those sorts of um, Institutions, they, they are really very active. They took play, uh, part recently in the uh, um, big United Nations meeting uh, where they're called to account in front of uh, all of their peers. And uh, there have been roundtable meetings in Uzbekistan. So uh, this is, I would say, a, an extremely authoritarian but really rather resilient mm. regime. Part of the importance of their role, for example is that the uh, armed force that really held off the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, was the uh, Northern Alliance, and of course the Uzbek army under General Dostum. And uh, this is something which I'm sure you follow from uh, South Korea. So, uh, you know, they are certainly the most powerful player in that region. And I guess that leads us to the next question. What do you foresee then is in Uzbekistan's immediate future, uh, foreign policy wise, economically? You mentioned how they are the most powerful player in that region. Uh, are those, um, I, I guess, is that power due to its uh, natural resources, its advantages relatively over countries like Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan? It's a relatively small country, much smaller than Kazakhstan, for example. Right. But it has by far the biggest population. Uh, and by far the biggest city in the region, uh, Tashkent. And the country itself is a bit of a patchwork. So Samarkand, uh, where President Karimov has just been um, buried, and Bukhara are in fact both Tajik cities within Uzbekistan. There's a lot of complexity in that region. I would say one of the key factors in the uh, forthcoming period is going to be uh, 
Uzbekistan's role in, in relation to uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, which Russia is now pushing, as a regional alternative uh, and counterforce to the European Union. Another very big factor is going to be China, of course. Uh, and China is pushing its own interests along the Silk Road and in the Shanghai organization. So we will have to watch that space. You do hear uh, people who do uh, want to advocate for more uh, democracy um, and a lot of the other values that uh, the West hold dear. Uh, in your view, in terms of the uh, the future, political future of Uzbekistan, is a liberal democracy something that is feasible or even, um, I suppose, desirable as far as the uh, stability of the region is concerned? Well, there's, right across the region, uh, there is rather active civil society, and surprisingly, maybe, also in Uzbekistan, uh, there are opponents of the regime, there are supporters of uh, Western democratic uh, rights and human rights, uh, but there is certainly no feasible opposition at the present moment, and that, that is rather similar to the situation in Russia and in other countries in, in the region, perhaps the most most authoritarian state, of course, is Turkmenistan uh, in the region. Mm. But I don't see Uzbekistan becoming a Western liberal democracy any time in the near future. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you very much for your time, Professor. Really appreciate your insights on this issue and helping us understand it better. No, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, law professor Bill Barring from Birkbeck College at the University of London. We're going to move on to our next topic now. Saudi Arabia has intensified its airstrikes on Yemen in recent weeks. Uh, human rights groups are condemning the kingdom for human rights violations amid allegations that it was carrying out indiscriminate attacks with little regard for civilian casualties. And countries like the United States and the United Kingdom are also facing criticism for being complicit in the killing of uh, Yemenis as the uh, Saudi Arabians' principal arms supplier. So to help us more uh, learn more about this situation, we're very pleased to have joining us from the University of Glasgow, lecturer in international relations, Dr. Sophia Dingley. Hello. Hello. Thank you Thank so much you for joining much for us. Um, first, for the benefit of our listeners, can you tell us how much military equipment is being provided to Saudi Arabia uh, by the United States and I suppose to a lesser extent by the United Kingdom and other uh, Western powers on an annual basis? So what we know at the moment is that uh, since 2010, the Obama administration has authorized a record of about $60 billion worth of um, U.S. military sales to Saudi Arabia. At the moment, the government is currently seeking the approval of a, be- of a deal that's worth $1.5 billion uh, for tanks, machine guns, grenade launchers, and the like. Uh, on the other hand, the, U- the United Kingdom has licensed about $3.3 billion worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia since the start of the conflict. And the third major uh, arms trade kind of uh, partner, Saudi Arabia, in the West is France, which uh, after the start of this conflict in June 2015 uh, signed a deal worth of $12 billion uh, in arms sales, which includes, for example, Airbus helicopters uh, to Saudi Arabia. 
So significant, yeah. significant. Certainly a lot of firepower. Um, do you agree with these accusations that this uh, recent Saudi-led bombing campaign in Yemen has been conducted with complete disregard for civilian casualties and collateral damage? Uh, uh, this is according to many international observers in the area. Uh, yes, to a great extent, I do. I do agree with this. I do not. Say, I, I'm not sure about the term "total risk disregard." Mm. There's definitely marked disregard uh, to civilian ca- casualties and also to the most important principles in international humanitarian law, which include proportionality and distinction between civilians and uh, belligerents. So we have the UN, for example, detailing 119 illegal strikes uh, in January in a leaked report. Uh, Saudi attitudes to the war in general is that of cold realpolitik. So yeah, the, uh, the war in Yemen for them against the Houthis is a war for security in the context of the Middle East and of regional politics, and more generally, or more specifically, actually, in the context of, Saudi, of the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. Uh, on the other hand, this is not to say that international human, humanitarian law, and especially civilian casualties, have no bearing on, on the Saudi government. For example, as we see at the moment, they, it, they are significant in terms of con- the continued support of international allies. But I would say that they remain of very little significance overall for the Saudis. So I don't know about total disregard, mm. but there's definitely a marked disregard uh, for civilian casualties. And certainly with the uh, outcry of uh, what we're seeing with the civilian casualties, it has brought us now to, I guess, the crux of this debate. And that's the question of whether the United States and the UK should restrict arms sales to Saudi Arabia uh, because of what's going on in Yemen. And I guess the idea that are they effectively indirectly uh, aiding and abetting these uh, sort of violent activities in Yemen by continuing to supply them with arms? Uh, in my opinion, I think they should restrict arms deals because in restricting arms deals to Saudi Arabia and also putting pressure on them in terms of the peace talks that uh, recently collapsed uh, may facilitate, first of all, a political solution, and this is the only solution to this conflict, and may also have a significant effect in lowering civilian casualties. On the, on the other hand, restricting arms sales to Saudi Arabia may attract the ire of uh, the Saudi government, which would spell trouble for the USA's and the UK's and the West in general uh, policy in the Middle East, especially on the one hand regarding Iran and nuclear non- pro- uh, proliferation, and on the other hand in terms of uh, stability in the region as a whole. So it's a very delicate balance for policymakers in which the lives of Yemeni civilians, I think, have w- weighted very little so far. Uh, so perhaps the outcry since mid-August uh, will change that. So we're currently seeing political capital being spent both in the UK and the US to address civilian casualties in Yemen. Uh, so this may bring or signal significant change. Uh, now, uh, in terms of whether there's effectively aiding and abetting Saudi war crimes, so perhaps you could say that uh, to an extent, but I am not 100% clear mm. On that, yeah, they definitely are facilitating this. This things happening, but uh, the calculations that uh, policymakers have to make are extremely complex sure. in this sense. So, it is a difficult situation indeed. Um, 
safe to say the bloom is off the rose. Uh, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the West, especially the United States, have uh, really fallen on uh, some uh, difficult times uh, through a host of factors, including the, the Iranian deal. But do you believe Saudi Arabia will continue to receive at least reluctant support from the West? Um, they are considered to be the last of a dwindling number of, although not democratic, but at least stable regimes in this region that a lot of people feel is devolving into chaos and maybe becoming a hotbed for Islamist extremists? I think, again, this will depend. So the, the past six years indicate that it is very likely that the West will continue supporting Saudi Arabia for a variety of reasons. So on the one hand, the Iran deal and regional geopolitics, uh, as a whole, the fact that Saudi Arabia is a partner that uh, has been that the Americans for for sure have been able to rely on in many senses within kind of regional within the regional kind of politics of the Middle East uh, is a, is a crucial reason. Uh, extremism in Yemen itself and being able to be on the inside and to monitor developments might be another reason. Though the Americans we know are able to do that themselves with drones, uh, the latest I think one of their latest strikes killing seven al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula um, kind of uh, men. So uh, the other, another reason might be oil and uh, discussions regarding that. And finally, the arms industry uh, has a huge sway. So I think because of all of these things and because of all these balances, it is likely that the Saudis will uh, continue to receive uh, support by the West. Uh, but again, this is this is an evolving yeah. or even devolving situation. Sure. So we'll see what happens um, as things change. Uh, from Britain's point of view, do you expect to see more scrutiny or at least um, a consideration of restrictions on British arms sales in the coming years? Uh, there's a judicial review uh, that has been granted apparently in the UK to uh, delve into the legality of these uh, weapons exports. Um, it, what are your thoughts? So, in that sense, perhaps we will see a restriction in arms sales. Uh, so, currently, we've got uh, we had the granting of a judicial review in June uh, to, to essentially probe whether arms sales to Saudi Arabia breach British and, and European weapons export laws. And these laws state that arms sales should should be suspended if there is a significant chance of any weapons sold there being used for human rights abuses. Uh, so this would mean that if this is granted, then the sales of weapons uh, from, if this is actually kind of approved by the judges, the sales of these weapons will be legal and Britain will perhaps have to stop selling them to Saudi Arabia. Uh, the High Court case will call my, uh, calls for the government to suspend as such uh, current exports and licenses and to refuse all new licenses. And uh, the hearing on these charges, on this kind of review, will be held uh, before the 1st of February 2017 in front of two judges. At the same time, we have Parliament really scrutinizing government decisions more closely. Uh, so we're seeing quite a lot of, uh, as I was saying earlier, political capital as well being used mm. here. So it's not just NGOs taking the government support and asking for judicial reviews. We also have uh, parliamentarians, so we have Labour MPs on the whole opposing uh, UK arms sales to Saudi Arabia. We also have six uh, Tory MPs at the moment also opposing Saudi arms sales to Saudi, uh, to, uh, sorry, British arms sales to Saudi Arabia 
And we have the government actually having to answer for the first time significantly uh, to the charges that it's aiding and abetting human rights abuses uh, in Yemen and humanitarian and violations of humanitarian uh, international humanitarian law. It is certainly a complicated situation indeed. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time, but Dr. Dingley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your insights into this matter. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And that was Dr. Sophia Dingley, lecturer in international relations from the University of Glasgow.